Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5? <coughs> John chapter 5, as we continue to go through the Gospel of John together. We're going to read from verse uh, 18. Well, in fact, let's take it from verse 17, and we'll read to verse 30. All right. Verse 17 of John chapter 5. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will, be show, will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's again have a word of prayer as we come to the word of God. Lord, we thank you so much again that we could come before you in this way. We thank you that we can read your word so freely, so openly. And we do pray that you would apply it to our hearts. You would give us understanding, you would give us clarity, and you would lift up again your son Jesus here before us. We praise and thank you for this time in your name. Amen. Who you trust is very important. And who you follow is even more important. Once when I was a, a kid, we, we grew up in Mondial, by the way, which is the Pearl of South Africa. It's in the south of Joburg. Probably haven't heard of it because it's so, you know, such a well-kept secret. And uh, Mondial was just nestled in this little, lovely little valley surrounded by these beautiful kopis, you know, tens of feet high. Not that high. But as a kid, they always seemed very huge. And we used to like to go exploring in the nature reserve around the house. They even put some animals in there, not that I ever saw them. You know, there was apparently one buck in that whole nature reserve. And uh, the one day we decided we were going to climb to the top of one of the kopis. And our next door neighbor, whose name was Byron, he said to us, don't worry guys, you follow me, I've done this before, I, I know exactly where to go. Now, I want you to imagine that these kopis are not very big. In fact, like, it should take you 10, 15 minutes at most to get to the top and you know down the other side well three hours later 
when we eventually emerged from the nature reserve covered in blackjacks because he took us through a cave that was full of blackjacks. We decided that we had followed the wrong person. We, we'd put our trust in someone we shouldn't have trusted because not only did he not know the way, but he led us into danger and destruction. Because if you ever try to pull blackjacks off your clothes, it takes hours, it's horrible. We trusted the wrong guy, and for all his bravado, for all the things he said, well, my next door neighbor, he was not a very good leader. It's important who you trust, and, and that's a small thing, that's a silly thing. I mean, we still had a fun day, well, barring the later period where we had to pick all the blackjacks off our clothes. But when it comes to important things, it matters who you listen to. And it matters what they say. We're, we're dealing with such a matter here in the Gospel of John, in, in John chapter 5, a, a matter of authority, a matter of, of who to listen to and why. And the Pharisees are dealing with this as well because they're looking at Jesus and they are looking at his claims with disgust, with contempt. And almost rightly so. I mean, it's strange in the situation because we would react the same way. I think I posed the question last week in the evening service. Imagine someone came today and was saying that they were the son of God, that they were equal in authority with God. Would you just accept them? Of course you wouldn't. Like, they must be crazy. They must be a lunatic. They must be mad. And so this man comes who's doing incredible things, though they don't seem to be able to see that. And he's saying that he is equal even with the father. They're saying that God is his father and he is his son, which in Jewish culture and mindset means they are equal in authority. I mean, that's what we read in the beginning of our text here. They wanted to kill him because that's what he was saying. Now, here's what I would do. If I was being misunderstood like that, if I had said something to make you think that I was saying that I had authority that I didn't, I might want to correct that very quickly, right? I might want to say to you, listen, you misunderstood me. That's not what I meant. I mean, God is a father like he's the father of all people, not like he's just my father. You know, I might want to just make sure you got me right. But Jesus does that, but in a way they don't expect. He doesn't correct them and say, well, you misunderstood. He, he corrects them in a way that says, you understood exactly what I meant. You got it on the nose. I am equal with God. I am equal with the father. Let me explain to you how that works. Jesus, instead of refuting their claims, instead of trying to calm them down and say, listen, I'm not God, he goes the opposite way. Not only does he affirm who he is, he affirms that he is the one who will judge them. That without him, they have no life. And if they reject him, all they can expect is judgment for all eternity. So the claims we have in John 5 are very stark claims. One uh, commentator he put it like this. He says, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father. His divine commission and authority and the proofs of his messiahship as we find in this discourse. In this whole section, and I actually count this to the end of the chapter, that we can't do the whole chapter today, we have a very clear statement from Jesus about who he is and what he is there to do. He's not really mincing words. It's not that difficult even for us to understand. But this is a concept that people have struggled with for millennia. Turning over and over, who is this Jesus and who did he say he is? 
Yesterday I saw that the Jehovah's Witnesses were, were out again. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to, to invite any in, because that's always a good thing, by the way. Uh, you should always invite Jehovah's Witnesses in. Can I tell you why? Because here are people who want to talk about religious things, and they've come to your doorstep. You've got no better gospel opportunity. They've come to you. You didn't even have to go to them. That's wonderful. Invite them in for a cup of coffee. I remember they, they used to visit me in Pretoria. And the sad thing about them is, is that they've struggled with this question. They, and they've gone the opposite way. Because to them, they can't fathom how Jesus could possibly be equal with God. He cannot be. He must be some inferior creature, some created being. Some mighty being, but, but still less. Well, Jesus begs to differ. Now, C.S. Lewis, he says something that we need to regard from the beginning. And it's really the question I, I sort of often present. He says, yeah, uh, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. We cannot dismiss Jesus' own claims about himself. You either accept who he is or you don't. And in fact, that's his message even. But you cannot take away the parts you don't like. You can't change Jesus' words to say what you want. He says very clearly who he is. You must either accept him or you must reject him. You must either look at him as a lunatic or a demon or a madman or accept that his claims are true. There's no middle ground there. And he leaves us no middle ground. That's why the atheists of today, those who, who like to claim that Jesus' teachings were so good, if only we could keep his teachings, well, how do you keep his teachings and then divide up what you don't like? Like John chapter 5. Because I can guarantee you, nobody likes this chapter if you don't accept that he is the Son of God. As a very straightforward chapter in fact the verse the first point is such a straightforward point that i'll make it very easily the son is equal with the father because he does exactly what the father does that that's the point he makes he says truly truly i say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing whatever the father does the son does likewise it's actually a beautiful framing device that Jesus uses here in the first four verses from 19 to 23. He uses the, the relationship as a son and a father. You know, and it's almost that you can imagine that the father does something and the son does likewise, you know, as they go about. And that's how, you know, children learn. They, they mimic their parents. Now, though Jesus wasn't born in the way th people are born, he's using that relationship to frame it. Whatever the father has done, I will do too. So I was saying that they have the same ability to do the same things. In fact, more than just that, he says that, well, he will show it, and he has shown it to be true. 
Now, there's two aspects of this, life and judgment, that we'll look at a little bit just now. But the Father does, and so the Son does. And this is mimicked all throughout the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, the Father is the great miracle worker, the one who stretches forth his hand and he heals. He, he raises the dead. He performs incredible miracles, incredible signs in the sky. He stops the sun for a whole day so the people can win a war. Nothing is beyond God to do because, well, he's God to do it. And when Jesus comes, well, what does he do? In fact, if you look at the progression of the other Gospels, uh, not necessarily the Gospel of John, because I've told you the Gospel of John is specifically put together in a different way, not necessarily chronological. In fact, if you try to read John chronologically, you'll get very confused about where things fit. But the other Gospels were meant to tell sort of an orderly account. And you'll see that there's a very easy progression as Jesus begins to show who he is. He begins to heal people, showing that sickness is nothing to him. It flees before him. He calms the storm, showing that the very elements themselves bow to him and cannot move. He casts out demons who tremble and beg for mercy. So much so that even his disciples ask, well, who is this? That even the, demble, the demons tremble before. And he raises the dead. He goes to a little girl, Talitha Kumi, and she rises up. Who is this that even the dead hear his voice and stand up? And probably most shocking, though it's told very straightforwardly, he forgives sins. A man who's a paralytic, his friends learn through the roof, you know the story, right? And as Jesus sees their faith, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, their mind blows. Because, I mean, that's a crazy statement, right? It's like, what do you mean his sins are forgiven? Who are you to forgive sins? Only God forgives sins. And Jesus says, you're right. Only God does. But which do you think is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? You get this inference in the question. If you have no power to command either, it doesn't matter what you say. I could say to you, your sins are forgiven, but I have no power to do that, so it's a worthless thing to say. The same as I have no power to say to you, take up your mat and walk if you're a paralytic, because I can't heal you. So his point is, if I have no authority to do that, well then, I have no authority to do the other. So which one's easier for me to do? And to prove that he can do both, he says to the man, take up your mat and walk. And he takes up his mat and he walks, showing that not only can he heal people, but he has the authority also to forgive sins. You understand the progression there. Maybe I spoke too fast, but think about it a bit. It blows the Pharisees' minds because only God forgives. In every aspect of what he does, Jesus is simply mimicking the Father. He is simply doing what the Father has told him, has shown him, and he's simply showing it to the people. He's trying to show them that what the Father does, I do too. What he has sent me for, I will do. What he has shown me, I will continue to do. We are one. He is trying to tell them that they are right in assuming that he is claiming authority equal with God because he is. God is his father in relationship wise. He is the son of God and he is equal with God. And so he will continue to do what his father does. In fact, probably the, the most let's say, clear verse, and also probably the, 
most convicting and controversial verse here is when we get down to around verse 23. We read, Greater works than these will, be, will he show him so that you may marvel. And then down, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This makes no sense if Jesus is not one with God. In Isaiah, I've got three Isaiah texts here for you very quickly. Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God does not share his glory. He does not give his honor to anybody else. Isaiah 43 verse 11, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. God does not share his glory, does not give his saving power to anybody else that they might get glory from it. Isaiah 48 verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? You understand why that's such a big verse, that God shares honor with the Son. That the Father would honor the Son, and if you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. Not only is he elevating the name of Jesus to the highest of all possible points, well, if Jesus is not God, if he's not equal with the Father, well, then God is sharing glory with someone who is not him. And that is a very troubling aspect. In fact, if Jesus is not God, we have here a very blasphemous thing to say. If Jesus were a created being, if he were the archangel Michael as some suppose if he were just a little bit less than God then for him to say that God gives him honor the equal with them would be blasphemous and the Pharisees would be right to kill him because he does not deserve such glory Jesus can only be one with God or he's a lunatic and he does not know what he is saying but he is very clear in the words he picks. He's not leaving any wiggle room here. He's not leaving you, you know, sort of space to think, well, maybe he's not saying he's God. He, he's saying he is. In fact, I don't know how you can read John chapter 5 and not see that. In everything he is saying, he is saying, I'm equal with God. I'm one with the Father. I do what he does, and the honor I have is equal with him. In fact, he has given me such honor that if you reject me, you reject him. So he's basically saying without him, you cannot even get to the Father. Without Jesus, you cannot know God. And that, that's the other aspects that he brings out as well. He, he's clarifying to the people and especially to the Pharisees that without him, there is no life. Without him, there is no truth. Without him, there is no way to get to the Father. This sounds very similar, right? It's like those are verses in John chapter 14 somewhere. That we'll, we'll get there eventually. We're only in John chapter 5 now. He's saying to them, without him, you cannot get to the one that you seek. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. In our texture, Jesus claims 
or shows his authority in two aspects, one in life and one in judgment. And he shows it all throughout the text. In fact, it sort of circles back continually on those ideas. Uh, what the father does uh, is that he raises the dead in verse 21 and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will. And when we get down again, like I said, to verse uh, 23 and 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's not a foreign concept. In fact, if you can remember all the way back in John chapter 1, uh, Jesus has already been called the life. He's been called life. In fact, he's been called light. The life that shines and breaks men's hearts, that shows the truth of God to them. Jesus is life as a concept. And everything else beyond God and Jesus is death. I Me and Warren have been speaking a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes. Which, by the way, if you want to, or not want to, you should always read the book of Ecclesiastes. But read it properly because it's sometimes difficult to understand. And in that book, Solomon, or whoever it is who wrote it, is near the end of their life. And they're looking back upon a life that they, they wasted. A life that they spent searching after meaningless things. In fact, that's the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless of meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. All vanity of vanities, depending on which translation you like. And it's very sort of downer of a book. I mean, he looks at his life and he says, Well, I, I chased women, I chased wisdom, I chased riches, I chased work and wisdom and vineyards and, and all of these things, and they were just meaningless. Worthless, chasing after the wind. And under the sun, there's just nothing. He keeps using that phrase, under the sun, which is important. He is looking at a life without God, a life without Him. And a life without Him is actually just death. A life without Him is meaningless. It is worthless. It's not a life worth living. <laughs> a life without God or Jesus Christ is a life that has been utterly wasted and spent and irredeemable. That's what it means when we call Jesus the life. That's what the concept of eternal life means. It means that it's life as a concept. Life is beautiful and vibrant and wonderful. Life that can only be found when you find the meaning of life, who is Jesus. That is the life that he offers to dead people. There's two concepts that we'll look at here when you talk of life and death. The one concept is like I'm talking about a salvation concept. He is the life that speaks to those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. The life that says to those who, who are worthy only of judgment, who are worthy of only death, he says, live. He finds us in our graves, figuratively, spiritually, and he says, live. And as, just as you were a dead person before, now you are alive. You have moved from death to life. The second concept is the physical concept, where he actually speaks of literally raising people from the dead. And Jesus can do both. But I, I think there's a, a differentiation in our texture between one and the other. The first aspect, especially in verse uh, 25, he's speaking of salvation. Later in verse 28, he speaks of the resurrection at the end of days. But we'll talk a little bit about that under judgment. 
But he has power to do both. He can raise people straight from the grave and he can raise sinners out of their sin. Because God has given him authority to do both. He has the ability to do both. In fact, without him, there is no life. Such is his concept. In fact, the judgment that he brings is a judgment of himself. We've seen this already in John, and I'm just reminding you, though, I'm sure not all of you have been here through all of the sermons. In John chapter 3, and we, we know John 3:16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But then verse 17, for God not, did not send his Son to the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the judgment Jesus Christ brings. Like you said, he didn't come to condemn, but condemnation is part of, why, of the aspect of why he comes. He comes to save, he comes to bring life, but if you reject Jesus Christ, you can only have condemnation. That's sort of the illustration I gave last week. Of it's not about heaven and hell and whether you want to go to either one of those places. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to heaven? But it's what do you do with Jesus Christ? Do you want him or not? Is he your savior or not? That is the condemnation and the judgment that he brings. It's a judgment of... Who am I to you? And what will you do with who I am? That, that's sort of what I've been trying to hit on this whole time. Who is Jesus? And that is the judgment that he brings. Those who, who turn to him, who throw their lives on him, who cling to him with all that they have, well, to those he gives life. To those who believe on him, he will give life. And to those that reject him, you look at him with contempt who, who do not believe a word he says and do not think he matters or well, they are judged the word here judgment can easily be substituted with the word condemned they are cast out he is the deciding factor he has been given authority to do that and that is why he has come to bring life and judgment the life he gives is overwhelming and wonderful it is abundant and eternal it is honestly the best kind of life that life could possibly be because it is Jesus Christ John 17 verse 3 and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that is the concept of eternal life is to know Jesus, to intimately be in relationship with Him and God. That's so wonderful because eternal life starts when you believe. It's not a concept that starts when you die. In fact, it's such a wonderful, incredible concept that the more you unpack it, the more wonderful it gets because Jesus Christ just becomes more wonderful and exciting and incredible. Because as you plumb the depths of His infinite wonder, you can only fall more in love with who He is. And the opposite concept is also true. That those who reject him embrace death. 
They will live their lives and they will try to fill it with all sorts of things. They will try to replace him in any way they can. They will eat, they will consume, and they will die. They will be judged and condemned because they looked upon the Son of God and wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, that's our, our closing verses here. Do not, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And you see the difference there? Earlier he used the word dead, here he used the word tombs. That's why I have a differentiation. Because dead there, in my, uh, I believe he's referring to spiritual condition, and tombs is a more physical sort of way of speaking of the dead. But regardless of how you want to look at it, uh, and the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. At the end of the age, when Christ has returned, all, great and small, good and bad, believers and unbelievers will be raised, each from the dead, to stand before their Savior. And there will be those who will be raised to life, to the resurrection of life. It's called those who have done good. And we know from context that those who have done good is not a goodness of themselves. It's not a, a righteousness that has earned them salvation. But it's simply because they looked upon Jesus and they believed. If there's any good that's actually been done, it's Jesus who did the good. If there's any righteousness by which they are saved, it is His. In fact, if they have done good, it is only a result of what Jesus has done in their hearts and lives. And those who have done evil, well, they have looked upon the Son of God with contempt, and they will be judged for all eternity. Do you see how those concepts are opposite, life and judgment, in this passage? Believers don't face that judgment, though technically we are judged. But our judgment is life. Our, our judgment is eternity. Our judgment is God forever. The resurrection of judgment is condemnation. Is hell. Is fire for all eternity. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has authority to do this because... God has given it to him. God has sent him with it. In fact, he is the very son of God. Or even as our passage here says in verse, uh, if you see in verse 27, he is called the son of man. This is another concept we, we see wonderfully in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, in chapter 7, Daniel gets an incredible vision of, of the ancient of days. That's God the Father. He sees him in his glory and his might, and David is Daniel, not David. They're very similar names. He's trembling as he sees him. But then he gets an even more frightening image in chapter 7. In verse 13 and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one shall not be destroyed Jesus intentionally uses that phrase here even though he uses it often but here specifically to point to these verses he is able to judge and he's able to do these things one because God has given them the authority and secondly he is the son of man the, the great 
one who has presented the kingdom and the keys, who has an everlasting dominion and to which every knee is going to bow. That is who he is claiming to be. Now the second half of this chapter, which we can't deal with right now, he goes into why these things are true, why they can be trusted, and who are the witnesses to him. And like I said, so it's almost a two-part message, this one and the, the one I will preach uh, next week. And, and I'm really saying the same thing I, I sort of said the previous sermon, but, but I sort of come to peace with my repetition. Because if the Bible repeats it, it's important. Every aspect of what John is writing, especially here in chapter 5, why Jesus gives this discourse, why he's speaking to the Pharisees is to ask the question, will you believe me or not? Will you follow me or not? What will you make of who I am? Now we know how the Pharisees responded, don't we? They heard his words and they hated him even more for it. They hated him even unto death. But not all did. He had those who followed, those who believed, those who had seen his tender, loving kindness, those who had seen his love and his light and his beauty and would not turn away. In fact, in John chapter 6, which is our very next chapter, whole crowds are going to leave Jesus because they cannot stand his teaching. They're going to look at him and say, well, no, this is not for us. This happens a lot. People look at Jesus, and even after they follow for a time, they realize, well, they want nothing to do with him. And still there are those who follow. It's the same paths put before you today. Will you follow Jesus or won't you? Will you believe him or will you reject him? Is he a liar or a lunatic or is he exactly who he says he is? There's no real middle ground. And do you understand what I mean when there's so no middle ground? Because beliefs and convictions require something of us. That when we believe something, we act upon that belief. Like I would expect an unbeliever if they rejected Jesus to live however they wanted. Right? I mean, who's there to, to judge them in their accord? To what commands are they holding? But to us who believe who Jesus is, who hold him to be God himself... There is no middle ground. If we say we believe that, it requires that we follow him and do as he did. And just like he says, he follows his father and does likewise. We follow Jesus and do like he did. We obey his commands. We carry our cross. We deny ourselves. And we follow. No middle ground. That's the requirement he's setting up. It's easy to judge someone who likes to take, pick and take the teachings of Jesus that they, they like and don't like. Like I just mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't like that Jesus says he's God, so we reject it or we change it. But we do the same all the time with his commandments, don't we? We, we affirm who he is. Yes, he is God himself, authority over our lives, and then we live however we want to. What we believe about Jesus needs to be true in our hearts, our lives, our actions, and everything we do. And we'll build upon that next week. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. 
We thank you for our great Saviour, our Lord, who has given authority in all things, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that again his love might rest upon our hearts, his grace, Lord, might wash and cleanse us and might drive us to greater faith, greater belief, greater action, Lord, that we might hold his commandments dearly and obey them, that we might reach out, Lord, with the gospel as he commanded, that we might seek holiness, Lord, as you are holy, and that all things you would be glorified through our lives. We ask and pray. Amen.